City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, yes, as the the file floats across the microphone, we come on with City Limits. I'm Kevin Healy. We've got Karina here today. Zeb's taking a break. She's um, probably working, I think. Good morning, Kevin. I'm not sure if she's working. Maybe she's taking a nice Just having a day extended, off. extended Easter, Easter weekend may, or may, something. Mayhaps, mayhaps, yes. Your, your, I suppose your footy team kicked Easter off for you pretty well, I thought. And yes, I was pretty happy about it. I do have a, um, a little tradition of going with my friend on Good Friday because the doggies will play North Melbourne every time. Um, but we didn't have as big a win as last time. What no, was it, 120 it? points? 128 last time, I think. Last year, yeah. <laughs> it was good enough. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. So you had a happy Easter then, really, didn't you? Oh, yes, I did. <laughs> Bad luck for Jesus on Friday, but you had a happy Easter. Um, <laughs> anyway, that's it. I, I had a very pleasant time. I actually had a pleasant lunch with some people on Good Friday. It's become a bit of a tradition now as well. Um, but that's, no one wants to care about that, really, do they? They, they want to know what's on the show today. It's our housing day and we are going to talk to, uh, we had planned to talk to uh, Libby Porto, a professor at RMIT, I think she's these days, isn't she, wherever. Um, but um, we couldn't get her on today because of Easter holidays and things. Uh, but Tell the truth, Kevin. I he rang, rang me I up. Rang and a, I rang her late, okay. He had a lazy weekend. Yeah, I had a lazy weekend. Um, <laughs> but she might. Anyway, that aside, God, God, I'm sorry you're on the show today already. Um, and uh, and we, we're going to have, have Shane McGrath from the Housing with the Age Action Group. We're going to have Jack and Catherine, aren't we, Corinna? Yes, they're, we sure are. And they're both public housing advocates who are regulars on this program. Okay, so that's that. Um, and I'm going to pour a tea. I presume you want a cup of tea, do you? Please do. I would love a tea. All right, I'll just pour this. Hang on, I think this will get the old radio going. You always pour it so precariously. I, I always, you know, hold the lid out of fear that it'll fall off. <laughs> no, the lid's <laughs> pretty... gung-ho. The, the lid on this teapot is quite... This teapot was actually donated by a listener who, who loved our teapot ring thing. Thank okay, you. we have to take little breaks there to hand them over because with all these screens in the studio because of COVID, we have to stand up and hand things over and things you see, listeners. Very um, now, one thing I did want to talk about um, was I, I mentioned last week how um, we've got secrecy clauses in, in, the, in the payouts that were paid to women who were harassed by the High Court Judge Tyson um, Hayden, who was Abbott's pick, of course, to run the Royal Commission to smash the unions. And we even asked um, if, 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 in fact, they'd been proven, and it seemed they had because there was an investigation and women were paid out, that you know, why wasn't he... Why, why haven't there been charges laid? And there may be reasons for that, but I'd just like to know them. Um, uh, and the other one, of course, is the payout to the... Um, to the staffer who, in the Alan Tudge case, where again the government's saying it's um, it's a private matter, it's in secrecy, and yet it's all public money. And in both cases, as I said last week with Zeb, 
I, I consider the High Court judge in, in what he did and Alan Tudge in having an affair with the woman wasn't acting as minister or acting as a High Court judge. They were acting as randy blokes having an affair or whatever um, or harassing women. And I, I, I find it hard to believe why the public purse should meet the costs at all. Um, why shouldn't the person who did the crime, so to speak, or did the, the action that's been paid out for, pay it out? Um, that's just a... It's a rhetorical question. I'm sure you can't even answer, Karina. But anyway. And no, I was wondering whether or not you had an opinion about the whole thing being kind of shrouded in secrecy, or are you like, well, that's, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't think it's uh, not the public's business. No, it, it's certainly not, I don't think. And, that, and I, I bring that up this week because there's a story coming out now about the concert that was cancelled because of COVID when the Grand Prix was cancelled a couple of years ago. And there was a Robbie Williams concert planned, and they're now talking about being being sued for eight million over the cancelled concert by the Robbie Williams team and and the wow. the promoters, etc. Now we know there's massive amounts of public money going to the Grand Prix every year, um, which should have you know which, which should not have happened anyway. The Labor Labor opposed it when it was first put when Ron Walker, Kenneth's mate, first gave the the Albert Park over and the save Albert Park. And the first few we used to I used to go down myself at the first few and protest, mm. uh, and protests continue on in some way or other, but. The Labor at that time, the Labor opposition at that time, said they, you know, they opposed it as well using this thing, and now they're up to their arm, up to their their necks in supporting it and being there and and going into the, into the, um, into the tents and uh, and enjoying all the um, hospitality, etc. So they're there, but they're being sued for eight million now. I am hoping that the Grand Prix Corporation, with whatever money it's got, and most of it I think comes from the state anyway, uh, pays it itself, and the state government doesn't have to pay that one because that's one that uh, also worries me somewhat. Uh, but we'll we'll see what happens there. Uh, another thing that's been happening in in the area of of government money going to where it shouldn't go is I'm going to have another sip of tea here. Karina, hang on. Mm. Lovely, lovely, lovely. Um, there, there was a story came out um, late March um, by a, a bloke called Joseph Brooks, a senior reporter, um, about the the use of consultants. He used it for the Digital Transformation Agency, but he talked about the fact that the Auditor General has been quite sceptical of the use of, in many cases, the use of the of consultants by government departments. And um, and uh, the Digital Transformation Agency last week, he said at the time he wrote it, which was um, middle of March, late March, batted away inquiries about a contract it awarded Big Four consultancy KPMG in 2020 for procurement strategy support, despite its value jumping more than fivefold over multiple extensions to 3.3 million and details being incorrectly reported on the Oz Tender website, etc. And it goes on about how there's problems with all these things. And we have mentioned, um, again on this program, during the controversy around the public transport so-called strike that was actually a lockout in New South Wales, uh, the background to it was that the department wants to effectively privatise the, the system in New South Wales and the department itself doesn't want that, or at least the, the, the government, the, the, the Treasury over there wants to. Right. Because uh, it can get then get that that cost off its books and make its and make itself look better. Um, the department is opposed to the privatisation, so they both hired KPMG to get a report 
And for the one who wants to privatise it, KPNG reported it would, co- it would save billions in the public purse. And for the people who don't want to privatise it, they reported it would save billions by not privatising it. <laughs> <laughs> and even KPMG had to admit there was a bit of a problem there. <laughs> but that's the sort of thing you get. I mean, so that's interesting because then in the age in the last week or so, a bloke called Stephen Hamilton, who's an assistant professor of economics at George Washington University in the USA, uh, but he did work for Treasury at one stage. He's come out totally defending the use of consultants, saying you get a better service. But a couple of things he says, which I found really interesting, there are many great public servants. I joined Treasury straight out of uni with a first-class honours degree in economics and didn't apply anywhere else. Many public servants are driven by duty, by a desire to do some good. They'll put up with a lot. But with a stifling culture, slow career progression, no freedom to make public comments, deteriorating relative pay and often mundane work, quality has to suffer at the margin. By being formally outside the public service, consulting firms helped solve this problem. Better recruitment, higher pay that's geared to performance, more flexibility, more variety of work and fewer unpleasant rigidities, all while working on rewarding policy analysis. That's a very good thing for ensuring better policy. Now, he, um, now those, the things he says are good about it, the public servants could do. You just have to stop. The stifling culture, the slow career progression, the relative pay deterioration, the freedom to make comment, the mundane, if it's mundane work for them, why is it great working, great work for the others, more variety of work? I mean, it's the same work, for God's sake. Um, So all you've got to do is make the public service a lot better, and it's there for that reason. Um, His argument to me doesn't quite stack up. He does say... He says the Labor, Labor wins the next election. They should do do everything they can to build a stronger and better public service. But And let's hope they do if they win, which is looking a bit more doubtful. <laughs> Morrison's reframing of the public service as a passive deliverer of government, government edicts was a big mistake, as was gutting it. So at least he admits that. But that point about reframing as a passive deliverer, I mean, they've put all their bloody own people into public service senior positions like the head of tre- the head of the Prime Minister's Department, Gaitchens, and they're all Liberal Party apparatchiks who just tell the government or agree with the government. And if, it gives sense, if, it's, if there's any query, they say, OK, I'll get him to report, and he always reports in favour of the government. So um, they have stacked it completely, but the public service, as it should be, should be a public service that is a public service. That's the thing, and that goes back to that transparency thing we were talking about as well. It's mm. like they, mm. there's no there's no public servants that survive off mm. the off the what is it dollar and eighty three cents or whatever they get per mm. vote in the major parties now. It's it's mm. all lobby groups and it's all this this secretive underhanded business and everyone's friends with everyone and everyone used to work for this person and yeah yeah it's part yeah. of the reason why we need we need groups working on transparency and accountability. That's right. Well, well Gaitchens, for instance, was, uh, worked on for, for Costello when Costello was treasurer. I think he was even on Howard staff at one stage. I'm not sure of that at that point. But, uh, you know, he's just a straight Liberal Party apparatchik. And so when he some reports sent to him, you know what's going to happen. It's uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, free and fair advice or whatever they call it. At least but, you know what you're going to get, right? <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Uh, another point that's been up this week... Um, I, I, that is, well, we know the government under pressure 
governments across Australia under pressure from big business were told to open up um, um, called living with COVID. Um, living with COVID also, of course, means dying with COVID. I mean, it, 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 it's a bit ambi- it can be an ambivalent phrase. You could say we're all living with COVID around us, but some people are living with COVID. They've actually got it. And some people get it and then they die with it. So they're dying with COVID. Uh, and it was all designed, of course, for the sake of the economy rather than the, the health of the community, as we know. And then they talk about let it rip. So if you let it rip, apparently we all get better in the long term because those who those who die will have died and those who got it will have got it. And the vulnerable, go, those with right, disability, that's all. older that's people. People like me, that's right. Down yeah. we go, down we go. Well, you haven't, um, been, you haven't been very productive for the economy lately, no. have you, Well, Kevin? I haven't. I haven't really, <laughs> no, that's right. I mean, I don't even buy petrol. I ride a bike, so it's awful. Um, <laughs> but... Um, but the, the whole let it rip thing, but the couple of things they maintained were you still still should wear masks, at least indoors. You've still got to wear them on public transport, they, although they've now dropped the mask in retail stores, uh, other than the people who actually work there, which I think is ridiculous. If the people who work there have to wear them, why shouldn't the customers? Yeah. Uh, bosses, though, for some reason think masks are an impediment to people working, which I, I can't understand anyway. Uh, and then, of course, the, the distancing has, seems to have gone out the window, but also the isolation thing. If, you, if someone in your household gets it, you're supposed to isolate for seven days. Now, business is screaming about that, saying we have to drop that. And um, it looks looks like governments are about to drop it, which is just, I mean, they, they say they want to drop it because people are isolating when they can't go to work and so they're short of staff. But in fact, if someone goes to work instead of isolation then the odds are that all the staff are going to get it anyway, mm-hmm. so it's going to backfire on the bosses in the first place. Yeah, um, that's, that's step one. But step two is they're saying it can be overcome by people having a rat test every morning before they go to work. Now, I assume they expect the workers to pay for that. Um, they're not saying we will meet the cost of that or the cost of, I heard a epidemiologist this morning on radio saying that you know, at least that people should have to wear proper masks, not just the sort of ma- mask you and I have on today, but those proper, you know, hospital type masks. I have masks. an N94, what, thank whatever you very much. Whatever they're called, yeah. Um, now, again, I presume the bosses wouldn't pay for that if that becomes a part of the deal. Exactly. Uh, so they're, they're saying to workers, we want you to come to work even if you have or may have covid we want you to do your own tests and we want you to presumably pay for your own masks if that becomes part of it as well. At this stage, they're not calling for the latter, but they are calling for rat tests. Um, now, I think um, now pe- old people like me get rat tests for free these days. Mm. But, and I know school kids might as well. Yeah, whatever. But, you know, workers workers will not get it for free. And I, it's a, it, again, it's, it's a cost on going to work if you have to do that every day. Uh, so I just think, um, well, one, I think they shouldn't have to go to work anyway, but if they <laughs> force them to, the bosses should at least pay for the rat test. Definitely. Well, something on this, Kevin, that I thought I would mention mm. as well, because, mm. you know, like I, I'm not the most well-informed person in the world, but I'm, you know, pretty pretty capable of researching some mm. things. Um, as listeners might know, I am on JobSeeker, so I'm on the dole. I do I do part-time work, but I do get supplemented from JobSeeker. And a couple of weeks ago, I had to isolate due to a very close contact who tested positive the day after I saw them. In a household setting, all the, all the government rules applied. Um, 
However, when I went to look at what kind of supports were available to me through the Department of Services uh, website, I applied for pandemic payment. It got immediately rejected because I was already on JobSeeker. So I called them up and they said, oh, you applied for the wrong one. You'll definitely be eligible for this uh, crisis payment that is for people on JobSeeker. So I went and did that and I and I saw that, you know, you can apply for it uh, twice in a six-month period. That's great. Um, and it applies on the website. It said it applies for anybody who's tested positive is caring for someone who's tested positive or who has to isolate. Nothing more than that. I got rejected after waiting maybe three days, halfway through my isolation period, and I called them up again and I asked, so this is Centrelink now, and I asked them why why I wasn't uh, eligible for it because I had all the documentation and blah, blah, blah which led to an hour-long discussion with this guy who was saying, no, you got your negative test on the first day, you can leave. I'm like, no, that's actually not the government rules and it's like baseline irresponsible anyway. And this whole rigmarole ended basically with this young man saying to me on the phone, well, actually it doesn't say it on the website, but if you're isolating and you tested negative – and you still have to isolate for further six days, you're not actually eligible for the crisis payment on JobSeeker. <laughs> so you're only, you're only eligible if you actually get it. Yeah, or if you're caring for somebody who has it. <laughs> right. Which is wild to me. Yes. There's, there's, no, there's no support on any level, and that's really been kind of a hallmark of this sort of late stage living with the pandemic mm-hmm. business. It's like it's not front and centre news headlines. So... Actually, everyone's just trying to get on with it, and that's facilitating spread, isn't it? Mm. And of course, once they're opened up and the let let it rip, it is letting it is ripping. I mean, you look at the figures every day. There's still thousands in every state. Mm. There's still deaths in every state mm. every day, uh, which weren't happening when we, you know, when we were much more, more careful when we actually did practice distancing and masks and isol and, and certainly um, not just isolation but lockdown for a while and mm. that d- doesn't suit business but uh, uh, even a, a university of washington lect- institute for health metrics and evaluation report came out just last week and said um, that it expects another 3000 deaths in australia by july mm. um, now and Western Australia is a good example. The Western Australian government got re-elected, and I think the the Liberal Party ended up being able to meet in a phone box. I think got two members, didn't they? Mm. Um, you know, a massive victory over there, basically because he had locked down and because he'd he'd stopped. The state had not run riot. It had very few cases, if any, and most of the cases they had were coming in from outside in some way. Anyway. Mm. He finally succumbed to the pressure from big business to open up his borders, and since then they now have thousands of cases a day and deaths every day that weren't happening before they opened up. And yet business says this is what we have to do for the good of the country and the good of the economy. Mm. We all have to go away and die, apparently. I mean, personally, I'm I'm not going to stand on the rooftops and advocate for long-term lockdowns as an effective measure against this thing forever. However, for me, I don't see the minor inconvenience of wearing a mask that potentially benefits someone's not only physical health but peace of mind, vulnerable people in the community, for example. I don't, I don't see the problem with 
you know, holding someone's hand, you know, like holding holding other people up. I really don't see the problem with that. Uh, and it's winter time. Like we're all cold anyway. Warm up your nose. Like mm, just right. for me, that's a minor inconvenience and I don't really understand what the hoo-ha is around that. Take my hand, I'm a stranger in paradise. And <laughs> with COVID, that's almost literally the case, if you, if you believe in paradise. <laughs> so there you are. Look, just before we go to Shane McGrath from the Housing with Age Action Group, which we'll do in a moment, um, uh, the, the election, of course, is running riot and it's going so brilliantly. Uh, what, I, what I have to admire, um, and I'm sure you're coming, you're feeling this every day yourself, Karina, is the incredible vision for the country and <laughs> and the big ideas that are coming through from both sides. It, 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 you just think, you know, isn't Australia going to be great after the election with these big visions and big ideas running oh, riot around the country? goodness. For me, it feels like sometimes I get a little bit down on myself and I go, oh, I did, I did really badly in school. I was, <laughs> I was really crap with deadlines or like I just handed in subpar work and then I look at this. I don't want to swear, but I look at what's happening at the moment and I go, mm, okay, all right, maybe I didn't do so badly. Maybe that's not saying very much, but oh, my goodness. Yes, okay, that, that sums up the election, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we might ask our guests what they think about it in terms of what's, of it, what's there for housing, and I think that will be housing and the, the, the recent budget and, and, the, and the election. I think if we ask our guests what, what's, about, what's there for public housing in particular in those things, It'll take about a second and a half. But we, can, <laughs> we can spend a lot more time, I think, talking about what isn't there for public housing, and we'll go on to that after this break. Let's get Shane McGraw on the line. Brilliant. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunakurnai and Bidwell and the Naro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter.
This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. Housing for the Aged Action Group, Hague for short, a housing group for older people run by older people. Present Raise the Roof! We advocate for secure, affordable and appropriate housing. So listen up on the second and fourth Wednesday of the month at 5.30pm on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. Okay, back on City Limits, and we've got Shane McGrath, regular guest on this program every third Wednesday of the month on from the Housing for the Aged Action Group. And Shane, um, lots of things to talk about today, I'm sure, but what did you have in mind you wanted to have a yarn to us about? Oh, well, let me just say it was a beautiful intro to uh, hear the, the start of our own show <laughs> as I came on the air. I'm <laughs> uh, feeling very much at home now, uh, very relaxed. Um, <laughs> Well, oh, I don't know. Normally, I need much more of a head of steam and tension and anxiety to talk about. <laughs> well, 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 well. Just the, the the fact is, of course, that well, the we've got a federal. You probably noticed we've got a federal election on, and as we were saying, you know, the the vision and the imagination and the the prospects for the country are looking so good with all the, with with the the great vision that's coming through from both sides and the big ideas. Um, Housing and um, we can probably just all pack up and go home, eh? Yeah, I think we can. Well, if we've got a home to go home to, of course, which is what we're talking about. <laughs> um, and um, housing in the budget, or the budget as well, actually. There was the budget, and now the election. Now, in both of them, um, public housing hardly seems to have had a mention. Yeah, I mean, the Labor Party is promising, you know, a pretty inadequate amount of new social housing. Not they haven't said public housing that I'm aware of. Um, but of of course, the the government itself uh, even more deeply disappointing in its complete failure to address the the housing affordability crisis, um, except in the sense that it thinks that housing affordability is a bad thing because it damages the the value of people's investments. Yeah, and of course, affordable, and they they even they always talk about affordable housing, and as we keep saying on this program, it's it's such a, a meaningless term. Uh, uh, if you've got no money at all, then nothing's affordable. Um, so, what's it matter? But um, so, yeah, the Labor Party is saying it is going to put money into into housing. But again, you're right; it hasn't mentioned public housing at all. Yeah, so I think that what they've said is that they'll uh, increase the supply of social housing by thirty thousand properties over five years. Um, that, that sounds okay until you think, you know, uh, everybody's home, which is the sort of coalition of advocacy groups um, interested in, in housing issues, says that the data, you know, the data shows that we need 20,000 new properties a year um, and Labor is saying 30,000 over five years. Mm. Um, so the the solution is, is not keeping up with the, the problem. The um, and, and as you say, that is social housing. Um, I guess unclear what proportion of that might be 
uh, sort of community housing, 30% of your income type rents versus other kinds of quote-unquote affordable housing. And I mean, also more broadly, you know, housing policy isn't the only thing, of course, that affects people's housing. Um, indirect housing policy thing issues like welfare payments are also crucially important. And we've seen, uh, I think, a, I think a back down, but also I'm a bit just confused at this point about what Labor's policy is, about whether they will increase New Start or consider increasing New Start. Sorry, it's not New Start anymore, is it? I'm mixing up my <laughs> unemployment benefits. <laughs> Yeah, it's job seeker these days, but it. That's right. That's they, right. But but no, they they've said. In fact, they have prom. They promised to the unemployed is they'll do absolutely nothing for them. That was their promise. Well, look, I, it's rare that I think that the Labor Party will keep a promise, but in this case, yeah. I think it's a pretty yeah. safe one. <laughs> yeah, I think you can you can lay odds on that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's. I mean, that's that was that, that outrageous thing to do, but they've done it. They've promised that uh, maybe he got upset because he couldn't think of the unemployment figure and he thought, well, I'll get my own back on the unemployed, so I won't give him anything. Um, oh, I think that gives Albanese too much credit for thinking about policy at all. Isn't his plan just to avoid having any as much as possible? That's right, which is making the election campaign even more exciting by the day um, as they struggle along with no policies. Uh, how's it with the Aged Action Group? How's, um, you've, got, you've got a general meeting coming up, haven't you? We do have a general meeting coming up. Um, unfortunately, because I'm a fool, I've put the details in a text message on my phone. And now I'm talking to you on my phone, so I can't <laughs> tell you where the general meeting is going to be. I'm terribly sorry. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll try and I'll pass that on to you and you can read it out after I get off the air. Okay. Um, but after, after firing everyone up about what an exciting federal election we have coming up, uh, the general meeting is to talk about the federal election. Um, we've been, has been focused... Uh, you know, not on a particular electoral agenda, but on skilling up our members to talk to politicians and people in their communities about uh, older people's housing issues. That's what we'll be continuing to do at that general meeting. Um, We think it's really important that politicians uh, do hear from from ordinary people about what's needed, Uh, but we also think that grassroots organising is is what's really important. And so bringing people together at our general meetings is a really important part of the work that we do. And we'll be excited to uh, put on a bit of a feed, uh, have a bit of a chat, and uh, talk about what 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 older people's housing needs really are. It, the bit of a feed you put on, by the way, I've been to one of those meetings, and um, it's worth going to just with a bit of a feed. Let me tell you that. So yeah, you know, pe- sometimes for our winter meetings, we all we we make soups. We bring oh, big pots of soup from home. It's even, soup. It's even better. Um, <laughs> so, all right. So the. Um, that's coming up, and you can't tell us the details because you managed to stuff it up. But <laughs> we'll uh, we'll sort that one out later. But you mentioned about raising issues affecting older people and housing with members. What what are those issues? Well, I mean, obviously, supply is pretty crucial. the The lack of secure, affordable, and appropriate housing for older people is the central issue. And to us, that that's mainly public housing. That's where our focus has always been. But, you know, there's all kinds of, of housing for older people that is, that is failing that test. Um, you know, whether that's retirement villages, public housing, social housing, private rental, we see again and again that the housing that's available for older people, um, especially people who are relying on pensions, um, and especially for older women who are disproportionately likely to be relying on pensions, um, is really inadequate. It's not providing the, the sort of spaces that they need to be able to age in place. 
Mm. And, and, and at this moment, I presume there's very little in those areas uh, in either party's policies. Uh, I mean, apart from what we've already talked about, I, I don't really That's think it. those are issues that the, the parties are addressing. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, retirement village reform uh, is, is considered a state issue uh, and the state government is uh, excruciatingly slowly considering what to do about that. Um, say that they will legislate before the end of this term of parliament, but that, you know, it's coming up for the state government as well. Um, not really sure what's, what's happening there. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's, like you say, the, the lack of vision at the federal level is pretty un, uninspiring. But also, you know, I, I don't really believe in electoral solutions. I don't think that, you know, it's useful to imagine that a Labor Party or a Greens Party or anything is going to save us. I think that it is our organising ourselves that, that has the potential to make real change. That's why, you know, the inspiring things for me are not the federal election, but groups like Rahu and some of the public house campaign groups are doing that really important grassroots organising. Mm. <clears throat> yes, Rahu's doing a wonderful job, isn't it? Um, which is the rental and what's it called? Rental and housing. Renters and housing uh, union. Union, that's right. Um, well, yes. Uh, um, also, just recently there was a report because you were heavily involved in the the changes to rental rules that give give tenants at least some more rights and mm-hmm. and power. Um, the the landlord screamed and yelled that this was going to cause massive problems for them. Yet there was a report even in the of all places the Herald Sun a couple of weeks ago that uh, beefed-up minimum standards for Victorian rentals have not driven landlords to sell up or increase rents, that it hasn't had the effect the landlord said it would have. Um, that seems interesting, uh, Shane, that landlords might have got it wrong. Hard to believe that landlords and real estate agents weren't fully honest about what we could expect, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely impossible to believe. Not hard to believe, impossible to believe, Shane. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think in, in a lot of ways those, those changes to the law have improved things. Um, obviously, there's been some very unexpected circumstances that have affected people's housing over the last couple of years that have meant those, those laws didn't have the effect that they were always intended to. Uh, and in plenty of respects, we'd like them to be stronger. Um, but, yeah, a big net win for, for Victorian tenants, I think. Although there were separate stories that, that rents have gone up substantially uh, post, well, post-lockdown and people coming back into community again. Uh, and, and one of the reasons given by landlords, at least, was the cost of having to upgrade their properties to meet the standards that are now required. Yeah, I mean, rent control is one of the the big areas that wasn't affected by the the rental reforms. And the government, uh, you know, is just uh, ideologically strongly opposed to the the idea of controlling rents in any way. Um, They're they're committed to this sort of mainstream economistic idea that rent control doesn't work. Um, You know, these uh, views that I I don't think have that much factual support outside of... uh, business school about how, how this affects the economy. Um, but, re- I mean, rents are a huge problem. And, again, that's why public housing is so important, because it provides housing that is uh, affordable to people, 25% of their income. Um, and, the, you know, the, there's this kind of vicious circle of making public housing more expensive than it needs to be for the government to run by restricting the, the supply so that the only people who can move in are on the very lowest of, of incomes, uh, as opposed to offering a public housing 
for for people on all kind you know all kinds of working people mm. who might be able to pay larger amounts of rent and make the system more sustainable. And public housing was like that, up, you know, many years ago now, many decades ago now. But it was, and it was when it you know it was a it was a wonderful service. Um, there's an actually that story in the Herald Sun. There's an, this is a bit of an aside, but there's a story next to it related to it. Um, about a woman who rents in St Kilda and shares a home with Spoodle, Taco and Python Noodle. And there's a photo of her with this huge python and this little Spoodle dog. And she's, But she points out she got, got Taco, he's the dog, at the end of 2020 and the law change in relation to pets and rentals definitely alleviated a lot of the pressure. Having them has had an amazing effect on my life, particularly the past couple of years with COVID and being in lockdown. Taco's made a huge difference. I love having him here. But I think to myself when I see them, I hope she he never lets the dog and the python loose together because uh, I imagine one would eat the other. Um, but that's, uh, that's, uh, just, that's just my aside on that story, that's all. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated trying to picture this and imagining the conversation when she had with her landlord when she said, I want to get a python. <laughs> that's right. I bet the dog wasn't asked either. <laughs> anyway... All right, so we can't. We haven't got the details of your meeting, but I'm sure you'll you'll get it back to us, and we'll give it out before the end of the program. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. Okay, Shane. Look, thanks for your time this month, and uh, we'll talk to you again next month. All right, thanks very much. Okay, Bye. thanks, Shane McGrath. There, who's from the Housing Today's Action Group, and after this break, we're going to talk to a couple of public housing tenants, Catherine and uh, and Jack. A proud black man, proud black man, you should not wonder. Strong spirit. First Nations issues, families, people and stories from a First Nations perspective. Mondays at 1pm on 3CR. Proud black man, proud black man, you should not wonder. The new Climate Action Radio Show will surprise you. Well, first of all, I'm not a believer in global warming. I'm not a believer in man-made global warming. And so you'll hear voices from all around Australia and overseas that are taking all types of climate action, whether it's stopping coal and gas, whether it's building a new model of society, or whether it's just sustaining you in the grief you may feel about the climate destruction we're facing. And in that spirit, here's a poem by Rumi. Stop, take a breath, for you are drunk, and we are are at the edge of the roof. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasurer. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. Hey, you mob. It's the simple, everyday things we can all do that will help protect our families and community from coronavirus. Like wearing a mask when required, catching up outside if we can, keeping indoor spaces well ventilated with windows and doors open as much as possible and getting tested if we feel unwell. Let's keep being COVID safe every day. To find out more, go to coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. PX Fano is a Pacifica LGBTIQ plus podcast providing a platform for Pacifica communities to unpack and discuss the narratives and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Presented by Pacific X, 
a collective that celebrates Pacific Island LGBTIQ plus communities through meaningful connections that honours cultural and gender identities. You can catch the podcast series every Sunday during Out of the Pan at around 12.30pm or on your favourite podcast platform. Supported by 3CR and funded by the Victorian Government Multicultural Communications Outreach Programme, for more information, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash out of the pan. CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855am. Tune in and listen up. Okay, we've got uh, on the line, we've got Catherine Murdoch, who is, um, of course, from Defend and Extend Public Housing, and Jack Burden from Friends of Public Housing. And um, there's a fair bit happening, but we did talk to Shane McGrath about the election and the budget uh, and its impact on public housing, which, as we said, can get you can cover in about a second and a half, but it takes a lot more time, I think, to talk about what was not there in the budget and what's not there in what both parties are saying for the election um, Jake or Catherine, you want to respond to that? Yes, I, um, I'd yep. love to respond. <laughs> or both of you, okay. <laughs> Jack, can I jump in first? Yeah, sure. I'm going to jump in first and just make two quick points because Jack's the researcher and he's really got the details on this topic. I'm the woman on the street and on the ground. Um, I just wanted to say one thing that does come into play in terms of budget not being allocated for... Um, public housing is, as we know, during COVID and due to the casualised workforce relationship breakdowns, etc., and poor mental health, there's been a dramatic increase in domestic and family violence. And public housing is the safety net for any um, men, women or children experiencing that. Um, recently, someone had an experience and they're currently nine weeks behind in their rent and the body managing the property, which is Unison Housing, um, were able to support that person, change their locks. Um, that person has 24-hour security and cameras on the public housing estate and is able to pay back that nine weeks rent as they're able, which means they're safe, secure, remained housed. If that person was in community or social housing, it can go two ways. The person, if they have a good advocate, a good support worker, um, will remain housed and will get access to support services. Who, But if they're not, or, and if, for example, they're suffering from trauma or addiction or a mental illness and they turn to drugs and alcohol to deal with that, then there's a big chance they're not going to be paying their rent, um, they're not going to be getting the services that they need and their community housing or social housing provider will take them to VCAT, they'll be evicted and they'll be homeless again. So that's just a, a critical point I wanted to make in terms of the difference. Um, and I will hand over to Jack now, unless you've got questions for me, that details what the, the parties are and are not offering and the myths behind the lies. 
Yeah, Jack? Uh, Shane got it pretty well um, right earlier on when we were chatting about this. And um, but I'll take it one step stronger. Um, yeah, public housing wasn't mentioned. Was only talks about um, social and affordable housing. I'll actually help expose that myth in a moment. But um, if 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 these guys are talking about social housing, they mean privatised community housing. Let's be clear on that. No ambiguity. There is no public housing in there, and we know that from other details behind the scenes about the, the various political parties. Um, actually stating that they have, their objective is to only um, build privatised uh, subsidised housing and the only, their only objective is to maintain existing stock and in some cases also over time transfer the existing public housing stock over to private uh, providers. Um, so, but I... I I'll actually mention one thing, though. The Greens did explicitly say public housing, 100,000 public housing properties. So they get it. They know the difference. They don't call it social housing. And they don't call it for a reason, because they know what's going on. And it's, you know, this sneaky consultant thing you were talking about earlier. I think, Karina, you said that. And it's all this stuff that's going on, you know, uh, behind-the-scenes negotiations with with these fancy consultants and whatnot. Um, and they're the guys driving this, the, the, the um, acceptance by the public and by the media of the word social housing. And it, it disturbs me because there's actually a development of a subliminal type of stigma around the word public housing. It's almost like woke. You're not allowed to, you're not allowed to use the word public housing anymore because that's, that's sort of that horrible stuff. Um, you know, it's that stuff that's in, you know, in those uh, towers that we drive past, and, and which is not the case, by the way. I mean, those towers are only about 10% of public housing. Public housing are houses around in the suburbs. And I've visited people who live in these places, and they're delightful, normal properties owned by the government and rented to these people. So... A bit, bit that gets me worried is that, yeah, this, so there's this, this um, sublim- subliminal campaign going on. And, let me, and I'll just cover the mystery behind some of these words. So, let's, firstly, public housing is government-owned and run. 25% of your income, no matter how small it is, is all you pay for that rental. Social housing is privatised, so subsidised housing, usually 30% of your income can be more, and also it's run on a lease-type term. So if, if your uh, income changes, sometimes you can get caught out and actually break your lease in this privatised environment, which, of course, is, you know, these guys are all about maintaining their, their um, you know, cash flow. So, you know, they're not around about social welfare, so you get turfed out. And not only that, but social housing also gets a lot of extra funding on top of what the tenant pays in terms of grants, um, access to land, access to favourable zoning and so on. Now, the confusing one is affordable housing. Um, firstly, uh, it, it's, it's, been impra- it's been embraced by the social housing lobby, which re- represents the community housing industry, um, and in a way, it sort of just muddies the water. But, so let me just sort of split it out. There's two ter- 
two ways of looking at affordable housing. One is for purchase. And so this is for people who, who can't afford to buy houses. So there's all these, you know, first home I'll buy grants and all these sort of things and deposit assistance going on, home equity schemes. So some of them are actually quite seem quite good, but the, 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 the thinking behind a lot of people is that it actually just drives up prices. So right now I think if we're talking about people on 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 you know allowances like new start or whatever, that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about affordable housing. So the other two form of affordable housing is rental housing. And and that, by the way, is run by community housing businesses yet again. So they've got their snouts in that trough as well. Um, but it's for richer people. So it's for people who are higher up income schemes, so medium to low income, they say it, and they charge up to 80% of the market rate and uh, of, for the property. And, yeah, they, they say only 30% of your income, but, of course, in this case, it'll be 30% of a much higher income, you know, up to you know, 80% of the market rate. So affordable housing is, is you know, a, a great tool for these um, uh, community housing businesses to extract more funds out of the government and usually also very... Um, favourable zoning agreements. Yeah, well, because that's what eight, nothing eight, put people at the front of the waiting list. Well, just there. recently, in the, in, the, in the last Sunday week in the age, there was a story now that on top of the um, one that um, Catherine talked about last time, the the Collingwood redevelopment that's going on where people are fighting, opposing that. Yeah. They're now yeah. talking about squeezing 800 more homes into the North Richmond estate, pulling it down and redeveloping. And yeah. the City of Yarra councillors came out and said... Um, the government should be building public housing on government land rather than privately managed community housing and affordable homes, which the government would not directly manage. Rent in affordable housing costs up to 80% market rate. So, yeah, I mean, it's... It's, it's um, It continues... Um, the the privatisation, effectively privatisation, continues, Jack. Yeah. Or, so, yeah. So, I'm, I was thinking about this. You can't blame the community housing industry for lobbying and, and you know, being successful. But the fact is, it's sucking the oxygen out of the public housing. Um, mm. it's, so any of the funds are going to either one or the other, and, and they're unbelievably good at their lobbying and and selling of the social housing word. So actually, you know, I've had a thinking about it, and, and I think the, these guys are the enemy of public housing. There's no coexistence with them. They are sucking the oxygen out of it. And we see it in terms of the type of policies that are coming out and the refusal of by people to use the word public housing anymore. Yeah. Um, and and I, I, can I jump in? Yeah. yeah. I just want to jump in and say absolutely spot on. Um, what also concerns me is the amount of development happening in the inner city areas and the CBD, providing housing for overseas students. When COVID hit, the government dumped them on the street and let them starve. They discovered food banks for the first time in their lives. But that industry that markets itself to overseas students who are here without family support, they are cranking up the student housing accommodation. So we can house students, but we can't house our First Nations people. We can't house our homeless family living on the street with mm. cancer. We can't do that. It's just a bloody disgrace. 
great. Yeah, there's a massive overdevelopment, I think, overdevelopment of that student housing, particularly up around the top end of Melbourne, around the uni. Yeah, it's all over the yep. place. But, yep. um, Catherine, I'm, well, both of you, but Catherine, you must have been deeply impressed by the Liberal Party state member for Brighton who said that uh, public housing people shouldn't be able to live in Brighton or shouldn't have to because it was for, for their own good that they shouldn't live there. I have been avoiding most political conversations because I'll have a heart attack. Um, it's not good for my, my anxiety levels. You know, and this goes back to what Jack talked about, about this stigma, you know, houses, um, commission flats, all that, you know, language, which in before, you know, it might have been used harmfully, but it was also used as a term of endearment. You know, in Kensington Village Estate, and, you know, all the other estates, we are so bloody grateful um, for a, a beautiful home and we care about each other and we've got community. Um, the other thing is, you know, we talked about the stigmatisation, you know, the the erasing um, the working class or people beyond working class. Is there a working class anymore? We're all under the poverty line mm. and shoving those people out of sight just like you'd shove the people out of sight sitting on the streets in the CBD at the moment. And on that note, when Robert Doyle did the big clean-out pre the international tennis at Flinders Street, I know they're friends of mine. They're still homeless on the street now in 2022, you know. It's the stigma. I mean, that person, seriously, I, I've, I can't even comment on their attitude or ignorance. You're absolutely right about the stigma, Catherine. I remember meeting a, a man in Preston who was um, on the street and he said he would get so many dirty looks and he'd just look at people and go, you're, you're three mortgage repayments away from where I am, mate. Like Exactly. A death, an illness, mm-hmm. you know, these things happen. This is life. Everything can be gone in the blink of an eye. And, um, and you know, my friend Lance Priestley has always said that as well. You know, everyone's so many steps away from homelessness, so don't judge. And I've said to people, all these people walking around the city over Easter, spending their money, having a great time, that can't even look someone in the eye, say hello to them or acknowledge them as a human being. And on that note, I've got to say that Mooney Ponds, that community is amazing. You know, they buy people coffee, they chat to them every day. They are part of the community. It doesn't matter that they're sitting on the street with their cap out. You know, and I think that comes from a very strong European culture and knowing what hard times are like, what wars are like, what it's like to be a refugee, what it's like to start all over with nothing. Yeah, well said, Catherine. Well said indeed. And and Thank you. and and the, the the another a similar story. A bloke, um, a mob called B A Ligon Street. That's the name of the developer. Um, yep. A building at in College Square, up at the top end of town there in Carlton. Mm. Um, they're, they're building a. They've just got approval from Melbourne City Council to build a, a rooming house with eleven rooms in a, in a bigger development, but they'll be within the development. And it mm-hmm. got um, residents around the place were complaining that it could attract drug addicts and criminals. But the good news is that um, 
the bloke, Mr. Amatruda from Melbourne, from the um, BA Ligon Street group, said, at our prices, it would be impossible for anyone to be a homeless person or an undesirable person. It is $400 a week minimum room. They couldn't afford it. So that's good news, isn't it? That, I mean... And by, by the way, Kevin, this is a community housing business. Mm. And it won't, they're actually saying it out loud, they will not take the poor. So they're getting all the government kickbacks. You know, this is just 80% of market rental sort of joke. Um, Anyway, look, I've actually got, you know, we're really up against big tobacco here, the equivalent of, and I'm sorry to say, but the community housing industry is sucking the oxygen out of of public housing, and we need to demand that the word social housing is no longer allowed to be used. And and so I, I actually think there is a way of doing something about this, that is, if anyone's a member of a political party, go and have a look at your housing policy. If it says social housing, go and say, hello, what do you mean by that? Do you mean community housing or do you mean public housing? Um, yeah. And you'd be surprised. Yeah. I, I, I presented on the steps of the State Library um, a couple of weeks ago, and, and I'd say the audience were there were extreme left socialist-type people. They didn't realise the difference. People came up to me afterwards uh-huh. and said, You've got to be joking. Yeah, I get it. I get it all the time with people who I think are good politically yeah. who keep talking about social housing mm. still now. It's mm. almost. So we, we just yeah. got a ban. We actually Look, got it. We got Jack, we're out of time. We've got to go because yeah. we've got to give the details of, of the Hague meeting as well. Um, okay, but so I'll just Catherine, say yeah. hammer your local MP. Hammer your local MP. <laughs> okay, get in there, get out there, email them, turn up at their office, ring them. Drive them mad so that they drive the bus because you're paying your taxes well, and you deserve the services. It's only fair because they drive us mad, Catherine. Okay, but look, thank, exactly. <laughs> thanks, thanks a lot and thanks for your time. We'll talk to you both again next month. Okay. Thank you. Um, now, that details that, that, um, that Shane had in his phone, it's 11 o'clock, 11 a.m. in the morning, obviously, on, the, on May the 10th. You can you can be online or in person. In person, of course, it's at the Hague office, 247, 251 Flinders Lane, Ross House there, where they have their office. And um, you can call, though, for more information, 9654-7389, 6547389, um, for more information on that one. So um, that's that. And someone wrote in, this, someone rang up to point out that um, Libby Porter is at the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT and that she was on Women on the Line last Monday. So if anyone wants to go back and listen to that, it's, it's repeated again anyway on Sunday morning at, uh, I think it's seven, isn't it? Um, so uh, there you are. That's it for the show today. Next week, we're going to be talking to hopefully Paddy Moriarty. His new book's come out called Switching Off Meeting Our Energy Needs in a Constrained Future. So we'll have a yarn to Paddy about that next week. Beautiful. Thanks for joining us this morning. Karina, thank yourself. You've done a great job. Oh, come on, Kevin. (laughs) And stay tuned for Anarchist World this week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.